listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast UK, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Rob Wall. I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today I'm your host. Today I'm joined by Martin Nash, Lee Newcomb, and Lou Mahanty to discuss the Government Cyber Security Strategy 2022 to 2030. Uh, before we delve into uh, the topic in more detail, let's work our way around with some uh, introductions. Martin, do you want to kick us off with a brief introduction? Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, yeah, Martin Nash, uh, I head up uh, uh, a company called CDS Defence and Securities Cybersecurity and Information Assurance Services Business Unit. Uh, we've been running for about three years now. Uh, in terms of me, myself, I, I've I've been around a while. Um, I, I, I had a career in the Navy as a comms and intelligence specialist. I spent a lot of time working in uh, the government and defence sectors uh, in the UK. I spent three years overseas in the US as the CISO for a small bank, um, which was interesting in its own way. Um, and I've worked with some of the critical national infrastructure services as well, um, uh, particularly the, the, uh, the uh, um, uh, uh, civil, civil nuclear sector. Lee? Uh, Lee Newcomb, I'm a director in Capgemini Cybersecurity Unit. From a government security perspective, I was a class consultant for what that's worth from, from 2000 till the scheme closed. I'm currently a senior information risk advisor. I've worked across lots of different uh, elements of the public sector. So when you start thinking about public sector, you've got health, law enforcement, education, all that kind of good stuff. They're all different in their own way. So I've worked across all those different sectors. And I'm just finishing off a two-year spell as the technical lead on a cyber improvement program at one of the larger government departments. Thanks, Lou. Finally, Lou. Uh, hi, all. Uh, my name's Lou Mahanty. I'm the MD of Stratia Cyber, which is an NCSC-accredited um, cyber specialist company. And my background uh, for the last 20 odd years is uh, I've worked in a number of uh, the consultancies, including yours, Lee, um, uh, at Serco and worked my way up to CSC before joining uh, Stratio as the MD. Thank you very much. OK, so now we're all introduced. Uh, we'll move on to the topic. So you all have questions or a statement on the government cyber strategy. Uh, as usual, I'll work my way around the room asking you to each of you pose your question and the reason behind it. Uh, each of you have an opportunity to give your take on the situation. So um, we'll start with Lou. Lou, do you want to pose your question, please? OK, I'll paraphrase the question, if I may. Um, this is about incentivisation um, to collaborate so that UK gets what it needs from cyber services. And the, the whole point of asking the question is really that um, we can't do everything. We have huge aspirations. If you read through the government strategy and the strategy before it, the national cyber strategy, we've got a lot of aspirations, um, uh, lots of competing approaches, and we don't sit on a lot of the bodies that we need to make the influence. So the question is really what can we do to um, incentivize the organizations and businesses that we work with um, to give us more. Thanks, Lou. Uh, Leeds, come to you first. Yeah, it's a really interesting question because incentivization, if I can say it, uh, can come in lots of different forms. So you've got the obvious things around money. You've also got the things around kind of vocational incentivization as well and career incentivization. So there are lots of different strands that we could pursue. There is a lot of activity going off to try and bring some of this stuff together. So you've got the National Cybersecurity Council that's bringing together all the various professional bodies to try and come up with a, a common approach to doing this stuff, which perhaps will help. 
I still think that government doesn't help itself because it has so many different bodies looking after cybersecurity from kind of government security groups, NCSC and all the other different bodies that are there that ideally align, but maybe don't always align. Uh, so again, that doesn't help from having that consistent view of what it is that we're being incentivized to do. So I, I think my summary answer would be government probably needs to get its act in order and then we can respond to what it wants to do. But we can help them to get their act in order via the different professional bodies and councils that are out there. Uh, so I do see progress because uh, there are all these different bodies that are out there and I, I should say I'm actually on one of the industry panels as well around secure by design. So I'm not going to give them too hard a time because I'm actually trying to participate to help them. Uh, but there is there is more to do. Excellent. Martin? Yeah, um, thanks, Lou. Uh, an, an interesting question. Uh, I think I think the incentivization needs to be uh, around the, the, the message that we hear all the time and that we know working in this industry that, that, that you're right, Lou, we can't do everything and we need to work together. I, I heard a really good phrase when I was at a, 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 a dinner a, a couple of weeks ago um, that said in the cybersecurity sector we, we we shouldn't compete we should collaborate um, and I think that's that's quite right um, there's not enough of us to go around um, but in terms of the incentivization for us to collaborate I think it's a difficult one uh, we, we we have to do it you know there's the term competitive mates out there as well um, but when you get to the commercial structures that that, uh, that that might enable that to happen, it becomes really difficult and and, and um, to, to 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 achieve in reality. So, I think in terms of the incentivisation, it's more around opportunities for for that collaboration, more opportunities um, to trust in perhaps smaller businesses to do things more flexibly um, and more efficiently uh, for particularly uh, government and defence. Um, uh, I also think there's another angle on it around we talk about you know, all of the incentivization seems to be towards uh, cyber technologies, whatever that means. Um, but, but there is so much uh, cyber technology out there. So initiatives and funding is widely available for if, if you're a technology developer. Um, and the reality is you might not really understand what cybersecurity is all about, even though you're developing and selling cyber technology. Um, so, so maybe some of the incentivization should be steered away from technology um, and towards the uh, professionals and the, uh, and, the, and the skills that are needed to support um, uh, uh, the cybersecurity and help us to all reduce risk. Thanks, Martin. Anything further to add, Lou? Um, I'm sorry, it was a bit of a boil, boil the ocean question, really. <laughs> it's about motivations, but um, I think there's a couple of things we could usefully do. I mean, firstly, I think we can make UK a much safer place to do business and the reason uh, and that will attract more organizations into UK and part of that is the legal structure is trusted and you can't underplay that because we've been involved with a, a, a two or three nations who just insist on doing all of their contractual stuff in UK so that's something that we could make more of and uh, maybe not on our scale because we've got a small company, but larger companies could exploit that a bit better, I think. There's something about language, uh, the, making it simpler, because although we assume that everyone speaks technical English, sometimes when you're, when you're trying to get people to play with you in, in a much more wholesome way, the language we deploy is so important, and I don't think we do that particularly well. And yeah, and a final thing I think is that we have to um, 
we have to play a little bit better in the multi community, multi stakeholder communities. You know, I don't know if you guys read uh, Ian Levy's uh, blog on his left. I mean, he brings that up so sharply when he talks about standards developments, organizations, and and how certain uh, you know nations dominate. And I'm not saying that we should dominate, but we should certainly play a much cuter way, a cuter game, trying to get into those spaces and and influence. One of those ways is using language. Just one more thing, uh, based on what I've been doing the last two years. Uh, I think that's been recognition that we're all actually affected by government security. So we, we all pay taxes. We all use the health service. We all have, well, I say all. Most of us have kids educated in the in the in the, in the public sector as well. So it's actually in all of our benefit to secure these things as well. And it's certainly something I've noticed on my program of work is that we have civil servants. We have representatives from a whole variety of different consultancies there and essentially it is a genuine leave the badge at the door culture we do all work together because we have a common goal of improving the services that we're working on at the moment and i think establishing that common goal is a really good way of incentivizing improvements as well stuff well, thanks Lee. and um oh, well, Lee, we'll come to you next for your for your question if you've uh, you got that there yep i have it handy so uh my questions are along these lines so austerity prevented a wide range of the public sector from updating its technology which has led us to a position where much of the public sector is now running on end-of-life software and hardware is unsupported kit the elephant in the room when it comes to securing government services martin we'll come to you yeah, sure um uh I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with much of government is running on it from my experience, um, but it's still nonetheless worrying. And I think maybe much of government is a bit extreme, but well, I certainly do see it um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and it is a problem and it can be an expensive problem. I mean, there are things you can do about it to um, uh, enable continued use of end of life software or hardware, such as, as we've seen, uh, paying the vendors for extended support, uh, which isn't cheap, uh, adding layers of security around those elements of infrastructure or technology um, that you want that you that, that warrants more um, uh, security by segregation. Uh, but again, that's not necessarily cheap, and it's not necessarily practical because it might mean that you can't get the connectivity that you need out of it uh, for, for, to enable that to happen. Um, so I, I, I guess, like all things post-pandemic, uh, where we've had to take inevitably increased security risk, uh, that that we would be looking now to 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 address the problem um, and, and and hopefully get off of that uh, end-of-life software and uh, hardware, or at least have a roadmap to do that. Um, because there's no excuse for the pandemic anymore. Um, we went back to cybersecurity risk management and reducing the risk. Yeah, I mean, so I, I like the question because, uh, you know, it um, makes you think about uh, all of the business, all of the businesses and, and, and the, and the um, decisions they have to make to survive. But, uh, um, from a risk perspective, it's all about appetite to me, the size of the state and the inherent risk in that. Um, and also the interfaces that you've got before you can actually get an idea of the extent to which, you know, you're in trouble. And before you start the old, you know, um, upkeep, update, upgrade, and uh, um, do something different um, a continuum. I mean, the capacities for different companies to to engage in that are, are really, really different. And as 
as Martin's already said, that you know there are some things that you can do to to ameliorate uh, uh, having to put up with um, stuff that is out of service. Most people can't afford to 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 pay vendors uh, for uh, extra support, but you know there are some things you can do around the perimeters and controls and all that sort of stuff. But at some point, that will be uh, uh, that will that will become an issue. Um, and I think there are some unintended consequences of that too. You know, you, most people that work in big companies have access to much better tech by just bundling down to the local local shop, and so they have an expectation, and they have this comparator that's ex, that's that's getting wider and wider all the time. Uh, and there's also a, the real unintended consequence of the example it sets both to your own people, but also to your clients and people and your suppliers. Uh, and uh, uh, that, that, as I say, is unintended and it's probably incalculable, incalculable. Uh, but it is an issue. Uh, and I, I can see that um, um, if this is if we don't find a way of dealing with this in, a, in a, an affordable way, because it is all down to money, quite frankly, um, uh, it's potentially going to be difficult. Part of, our, part of our egress from uh, from COVID. Martin, you don't know? Yeah, I, I just I, I guess we should add the operational technology dimension into here, which is uh, obviously adds to this problem probably exponentially as we as we start to internet connect uh, operational technology, um, which in my experience people are still burying their heads in the sand about and and, and refuse to believe is, is is happening in a lot of cases. It absolutely is, um, and uh, there is there has been good risk reasons in the past where. It didn't really matter if you weren't updating or patching software if it was disconnected and, and you know in use because basically uh, switching something on and switching it off again um, and that was the extent of it um, but, but but today that that risk is um, ever more that increased so but but we, we, we go down a whole different route if we start talking about the relationship between it and ot um, and i'm sure we don't want to get there today in terms of the cybersecurity strategy although you know, there is a big emphasis in the cybersecurity strategy on critical national infrastructure and what that means. And a big chunk of critical national infrastructure is uh, is hugely dependent on operational technology. Right. Lee, any points, Jeff? Yeah, so I guess I had a, a couple of reasons for asking the question. So when you when you look at the cybersecurity strategy, it talks a lot about secure by design. And I think we're all familiar with the whole idea of cloud first and moving towards the cloud. And that enables us to do lots of really cool things. And, and we can automate and do security better going forwards. However, there is that rump of technology that gets left behind and some kind of sensitive systems and data is, is left on that rump of technology that's left behind. Uh, so from that risk perspective, is there still a degree of risk that we're not really addressing because we're focusing on the new world rather than the old world? And the second point is lots of that old world has developed organically over the years. So you will have uh, systems that are not quite hold together with sticky tape and plastic, but rather than fundamentally re-engineering things, we just tinker with them a little bit and add a little bit of functionality here and there. So uh, I think at some point, a few of the larger departments are going to have to wrestle with the problem of what can we do to get off that platform? Is it the case that what we actually do is relatively simple, but we've over-engineered things over the years because of that complexity has come in over the years, and maybe it is time to uh, throw away the old and build on the new, taking advantage of all the new things in the cybersecurity strategy? Or 
do we try and maintain this stuff that is is quite old and rickety? Uh, I think at some point that question's got to be wrestled with, because at the moment I don't think it necessarily gets the consideration it merits. Any further points on that question? Okay, fantastic. Martin, we'll come to you next. Okay, so I've got, I've got, uh, I guess quite a, quite a, what I believe is a simple question, and I'll obviously have my view on it uh, afterwards. But I, I just wondered what, what you think the positive and the negative impacts of the first strategic pillar being underpinned by NCSC's cyber assessment framework is or are. Martin, Lou, come to you. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, it's, I mean, uh, actually, I thought it was quite an interesting question because, uh, um, yeah, pillar one is. One of those things, yeah. Building building cyber resilience is a, quite a loose term in 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 some ways. So um, it was interesting what they said about it, but um, um, it kind of links to your question as well, Rob. But it, it's you know um, right people, right knowledge, right partnerships, all of that sort of stuff um, is all very good. I thought it was quite government centric. I know you expect it to be because it's a government's cyber strategy, but it was very government-centric, uh, um, and a lot of the benefits only accrued to government immediately. Um, I think it's quite ambitious. The timescales of it is are very ambitious. You know, 2025 is not long. I mean, it's 2023 almost, and, uh, uh, you know, we've got a couple of years to, to achieve some of the things that are quite demanding. Um, the proposal is that I think that CAF will be adopted as a... Um, uh, for government bodies, and then it's going to be a rollout after the first set of pilots, and I suspect that's going to be next year. Um, I think there's an issue about government leadership here where they can use um, uh, regulation much better. Um, it's always been an issue when things like this come out that there's never a level of mandation. If you mandate things that are generally good, then you're going to get much better take up and people are less likely to veer away from it. Uh, and there are a number of frameworks that are you know, unrelated to this, but you know, related to cyber, uh, which have not had good uptake because there was no mandation for government bodies to, to, to use, use, use the frameworks. So there's a little bit about that. Um, I think uh, there's something about um, uh, expanding the nation's skill, skill levels, which, which is, um, uh, needs to be looked at. The language needs to be looked at because um, there's so many things implicit in that, and I don't think uh, a lot of those things exist at the moment. Um, and a lot of it can be driven by the choices that are made, both by government and by industry, and in what direction they take technology, because that should source the skills and the skill requirements. And I'm not sure that linkage is there. So I think that's. Um, that's one of the great disadvantages of having something as loose as this um, as a pillar. Um, that's all really. I mean, there's loads of things that we could talk about, but uh, it, it's not. It's nice to have uh, a schema to innovate against, and that's what this could be. Yeah, I think it's good that we've got back towards a more standardised approach. I think since IS1 was retired many years ago, uh, the public sector has struggled to come up with a consistent way of doing risk assessments. Uh, and IS1 had its problems, specifically in the reams of paperwork that it produced, but at least people kind of understood what the approach was. And there was a degree of standardization there, which I think we we lost a little bit after IS1 disappeared. 
the problem I have with the CAF is by design of the CAF, which is it is still kind of subjective. So there's lots of language in there about things being appropriate. Uh, now, going back to my intro there, what's appropriate for health would not be appropriate for law enforcement and, and vice versa. They all kind of have different balances of confidentiality, integrity and avail availability when you start thinking about what it is they have to do. So my concern with that is how the data is going to be used. So if we do CAF across the entirety of the public sector, that information is going to be captured in the centre and used to manage how we do things going forward. It isn't really going to be as consistent as maybe people think it's going to be. It's going to be the same methodology, but the lenses that are applied on it in the different sectors means that it might not be too wise to base decisions on that data if the assumption is that it's all been interpreted the same way. So that's kind of my, my my pros and cons of relying on the CAF. Martin, you want to add some points? Yeah, so the, 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 you know, the primary reason I asked the question, I think, is because when, when, when I saw it and, and I've had some indirect involvement or, or visibility of the CAF, which I thought was really good, but when I saw it on there, I, I was trying to think of the positives and negatives. Um, and where I ended up was every time I came up with a positive, I could see it as a negative as well. <laughs> Um, I'll give you some. I'll give you some examples. So you know, it's the CAF is designed and um, rightly so, in my opinion, to be outcome based. You know, it's not necessarily prescriptive, although it can be in some instances. And I understand that some elements in the future uh, could be more prescriptive. Um, so that's a positive, uh, you could say. Um, but it also could be a negative because I also know from experience that not many people understand outcome focused approaches uh, to anything and, and that, that leads us to risk um, and, and going back to what Lee was saying I don't think there is a consistent approach and people don't really necessarily understand uh, how security risk uh, works um, in reality uh, often enough that's not general blanket statement but often enough so um, and then um, the other thing I the other element I was thinking of is um, uh, you know it's uh, NCSC continues to put a lot of time and effort into the CAF and there is strong evidence that they're going to support into the future and um, there are other frameworks out there um, that we know about like NIST um, and 27001. Uh, if, if, if you don't know then I can tell you that the that Defence has thrown all of its um, all of its efforts at NIST um, only to be caught a bit unaware aware by the CAF coming along but the good news is that NCSC recognise that and have, and have done and will continue to support the mapping of um, the CAF to NIST, um, which, which is what we all end up doing anyway when we see these different frameworks, is mapping them all into each other. Um, so, so I think, um, you know, th th there's another plus or minus there. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting generally for the cybersecurity strategy, and we're seeing necessarily emergence of it, but certainly a focus on it is is that it's, it's very focused on you know, resilience as a, as a concept um, and um, probably that's the same for the whole of the cybersecurity strategy. It's a word that comes up more and more um, in the race. It's getting closer to the word digital um, um, with probably cyber just a bit behind. But I'm still not sure we all understand what any of those words mean <laughs> um, in, in, in reality unless we unless we write it down and, um, and, 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 and uh, uh, force ourselves to to adhere to to a definition of it of any of those statements. So, but yeah, I, I I tend to agree that it's a that it's a good thing, um, um, realistically. But but uh, into shame that there are other frameworks out there um, that maybe could have uh, been a, a, you know adopted. But but 
it's a good national snap at it, I think. Thanks, Martin. Lee? Yeah, just I was I was lucky enough to do another one of these podcasts uh, last week, which is all about operational resilience. Uh <laughs> because primarily the FCA and PRA are driving quite a lot of work in the operational resilience space in the financial services sector. And one thing that they do do quite well is definition of terms. So things like intolerable harm, important business services, all that kind of good stuff. And I think it would be good to see government align a little bit more with that output from the likes of the FCA and the PRA because they've done a lot of the legwork and what we quite often see in cyber generally is stuff leaking from financial services into uh, the wider cybersecurity environment because everybody sees financial services as being an exemplar because they're the guys with all the money uh, but there, there has been lots of work there done there that I think we could build on. Yeah so certainly in the services that we we deliver uh, and as a cyber security company um, organization and cybersecurity professionals we have we have a definition that we pin our services to as a team and as long as we're all talking about it in the same way then the customers should understand it in the same way as what i believe um so so yeah i think i think um that's what we need to do but and also interestingly i've recently reviewed um a defense paper all around uh cyber and digital um and it started by defining uh, what digital was and totally ignored cyber for the rest of the way through it. It's just like, if you're going to define one, then you have to define the other as well. Um, so, so the understanding is right. Oh, you just bought it on at the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you got in that mess in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> Any further points on that? At the end of it. Take them. This one. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I did have a question for the table. Um, so yeah, I just asked, wanted to ask him how you thought the, the cyber skills gap in the UK workforce um, would impact the, the government's cyber strategy, especially with the public sector financial constraints, shall we say. Um, we do tend to see there's quite a differential between the salaries that someone who works directly for them um, versus a consultancy there's, there's a good, there's a big gap there between the salaries as well. Um, and obviously how, how they're going to, compete to i suppose to, to to improve their own their own workforce Lou, come to you yeah i mean if 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 we as a nation get the key cyber technologies sorted out and sort of actually delineate what that should start sourcing the right sort of skill sets from our perspective um uh, the skills that we buy which you know is relevant uh, need to translate into what our com- what companies buy so if we don't have the right skill sets People won't buy us, and those skill sets not don't necessarily map to some of the skill sets and some of the, some some of the articulation in the strategy. The other thing I think is that's quite important is that there's the behaviour of suppliers of accreditation. You've got those who are just interested in fees. I mean, to paraphrase, it's not necessarily their motivation. They seem to be a, a, more interested in fees and capturing as much of that as possible. And at the other pole are those that are interested in just the quality and almost from an academic perspective. So if you've got this continuum of government and academia and industry, you're going to get that tension. And I think uh, we have to find a way of of uh, equalising that so that uh, people like us who buy the skills in on behalf of other people are going to uh, you know actually want them uh, deployed into their organisations uh, have a fighting chance of having a good mix of the right qualities of technology um, skills um, and and at a reasonable rate that we can afford to pay. Otherwise, it kind of falls apart for us. And we're more than 50% of the increase in cyber companies in the UK. 
people our size. So that's really important to get that sort of way. Now, again, once again, um, uh, if you, uh, I've just got it up here, develop the right cybersecurity skills, knowledge and culture. By 2025, there's a huge number of things that need to be achieved. Yeah, don't know how they're going to do that. <laughs> yep. And Lee, come to you. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky one. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is around sourcing strategies. So if the larger government departments are able to source some of the more technical roles from outside, and I do have a commercial interest in this, obviously, but if they are able to uh, bring those technical skills from the market, then they can focus on developing that intelligent client side of things so maybe have a a narrower skill base that they have to develop and focus on in order to do their job and, de and de deliver that kind of risk management there that's there the other thing that i tend to see is the public sector is a really good place to learn and develop your skills so as, as a kind of a, a new person entering the cybersecurity jobs market then learning in the public sector is a really good place to do it because you get a good lot of training you get exposure to some really interesting problems and then you can get pinched by some of the larger consultancies or other, other people but it is a good place for that kind of initial step on that cybersecurity journey i don't think you're ever going to be able to see the public sector compete with the private sector all the way through the cybersecurity career journey just because as you said there rob that kind of compensation question is always going to come up and the private sector will i think always be able to pay that a little bit more so uh the, the, the folks I've seen who've been in the, the public sector for a long time do it because they love it. Uh, they have a real strong vocational leaning towards public service. And I think that is something that the private sector maybe not can't compete with. Uh, I've, I've been lucky in that I've spent lots of time client side, so I kind of get the best of both worlds. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a really tricky one for government. I think that is probably the hardest question that they've got is how do they train the people up and then keep them? Okay. Martin, what do you? Yeah, I, I think generally we need to get, um, and you'll love this, Robert, um, we'll, we need to get smarter with our recruiting um, and um, smarter with our uh, contracting as well to, to, to help to solve some of this problem. And I can talk from recent experience of the team I'm building at the moment. Um, but, but let's have a look first at, um, at, at, at what the government's done so far for skills. Uh, so uh, Lee, you mentioned the C word earlier on, the class word. Um, we've seen CCP1 and CCP2 since. Um, and my personal opinion is that the CCP1 is a good step in the right direction um, for recognising that there were different specialisms in, in, in the cybersecurity field. Um, and then CCP2 has just become far too focused, far too detailed on on the very top one or two percent cyber specialists that we need in the country when we need loads of people we're focusing on the top two percent and it doesn't make any sense at the other end of the scale and to give you know ncsc and government credit a lot of time and effort into uh, uh, universities and colleges and schools to get people interested in cybersecurity. people are turning out cybersecurity related degrees now which is great um, right up until the point where they finish university and we lose them in the profession because companies don't want them because they don't have any experience. Um, so, so we need to we need to fix that. And then there's the bit in the middle, which uh, I, you know I think Lee, Lee touched on there with uh, you know, how do we get um, uh, how do we get people that are interested in changing to a cybersecurity career into cybersecurity. I don't think there's an awful lot for them at the moment, other than to 
uh, you know, research and find and, and maybe uh, uh, take some certifications um, and find a job and maybe initially have to take a, a, a salary cut to, to for the reward later on because we know that those salaries are generally very good in such once you've got experience. So I think we need, we all need to work together to 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 fix that. Um, you know, we've got um, four cybersecurity graduate apprentices in my team now been a revelation in thinking and thought you know two of them are just finishing year two to have just started with us um uh, but but i have to say even though it's an ncsc approved um institution that are delivering that that, that degree apprentice program uh, they, they're suffering from sub skill shortage too they can't keep the same tutor for more than a few months um and, and that turbulence makes its way through so i think that puts additional um pressure on industry and, and it certainly does on my team although we enjoy it is to make sure that they're getting the best out of their learning in the workplace so i do think there's an awful lot to be said for these graduate apprentice schemes all the apprentice schemes generally where we can get people in the workplace um, but the demand on the competencies that they have to meet um, uh, no one company can give them all of that uh, but so we need again we need to work together to give i think the, the younger generation the opportunity to to have that breadth of exposure in the learning that they're taking so, you know, uh, the other thing that I will um, flag away, which I think is a, a really good, um, uh, a really good piece of work by academia commissioned by NCC is a cyber body knowledge. You know, again, for, for just, I think, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure anybody sat down and read the 700 and odd pages that, that, that is there, but certainly is a source of reference. And, and for me, the diagram they produced, though, which was divided into knowledge areas and categories, and for the first time, that's where I've seen the cybersecurity profession codified in a meaningful way. And, and, I, and I struggle to think of what, you know, anything that's drastically missing from there. So I think that that that, that only uh, serves to help skills um, improvements in the future. Uh, what, you know, a, a, a scheme that was initially um, conceived on the basis that it was to inform academic learning and courses for, for graduates is now being turned into something that can be used for uh, to start to map skills to um, and, you know, and, and, and what sort of skills should we look for in people that are in this sort of uh, discipline in, in cyber security so I think I think we've come a long way but it's all a bit disjointed and it all needs to be joined up and I do think that we've got that as, as, as a UK government uh, approach it's a bit upside down they're concentrating on the too few instead of the many that we need to to, to, to feel the, uh, the, the, the skill shortage. Roger. Any further points on that one? Well, I totally agree on the uh, um, on the idea of, of people retrading. Uh, we've had some success. There are increasing number of bodies that are doing that, and we've had some quite good success in terms of the quality of people that are retrading into the cyber first. They don't come with huge aspirations, but they come with a huge span of ability that you know you don't necessarily see in technical people um and uh you know ability to write is one um and and the ability to think differently it's just good so we've got two people that uh i mean we haven't got a big big number of people in our company but but they are uh, they are progressing really quickly and they're picking things up really quickly and they use cyborg cyborg is fantastic as 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 a resource you know, for people that are trying to learn and get themselves into this profession. So I think things are good. Uh, yeah, yeah we, we, we've had a similar experience. We've got some people that um, have um, 
<coughs> had some side experience with cybersecurity and want to get into it. But maybe going back to the, your initial question, Lou, that's where some of the incentivization needs to be. You know, if those people can be rewarded in some way um, for you know coming in and maybe given access to free certifications and free learning, um, as, as much as we're giving the younger generation, then perhaps that is the next logical step to fill that bit in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. I think in some ways, the cybersecurity industry needs to help itself as well. Uh, we, we can struggle a little bit with gatekeeping, and that's something we probably need to try and watch ourselves as well to make sure that we don't keep people out just because uh, that they don't necessarily think the same way that we think, or they, they don't look how we look. We, we, we need to be more open to different ways of doing things. We're not always the best at that. Yeah, in terms of specialists, the way that you will know it's you will have experienced that it's done is we, we want a resource to do this and it has to have the right level of experience and the right certification. Um, and, you know, we're fortunate enough to have a contract where we've provided more of a service based approach um, and we're putting people in, but we're in control of the people we put in, which means that in building that team, as long as we have enough experienced people um, uh, uh, within that team to provide the coaching and mentoring, we can start to feed people in with less experience um, and they can learn you know on the job without any detriment to the to the service that we deliver to the customer because ultimately we have the skills experience certifications they expect but we're also bringing people into the profession uh, you know and uh, that, that, that are learning cybersecurity so we're turning out more cybersecurity professionals as a result as well whereas if they change that model and said we want 12 um, cybersecurity professionals with this certification and that i'd struggle to get 12. In, in, in a short period of time, um, let alone in government, some of the logistics around clearances and things like that that we need to um, uh, tackle as well. Um, but, but if you're being given and said, you know, we want this service and want to provide this expertise, you can do it in a more innovative way um, if that's the way that you're contracting. And any further points? Okay, fantastic. We'll leave it there. Um, so this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. We'll take this opportunity to thank Martin, Lee and Lou for providing their insights on the topic and thank you for listening. If you'd like to get involved in our upcoming podcast, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or on email at robert.wall, evolutionjobs.co.uk and we will see you next time.